point in life, we all have to ask ourselves, what are we for? How will we make a difference in our time and place? Because we have been called. Called to rise up and attempt great things for the kingdom. A kingdom that is bigger than a city. It's bigger than a state or even a country. It's a kingdom that covers the globe. And unlike realms of the past, whose rulers have faded with history, our king is alive. And he has called us to spread the good news of hope and love, to build up a community that impacts the world for good, to make our mark for his kingdom. Good morning, good morning, church, and welcome to the climax of our series. We've been in this incredible series called For the Kingdom, and we have been in 50 days of prayer, started September 16th, and now today is the kind of the climax of that 50 days, and it's been awesome. God, it's just been awesome to see what God is doing, and so many people accepting Christ, so many people being baptized and celebrating that, so many people joining the church and saying, hey, I'm moving from the sidelines to get in the game, I want to be involved, people signing up to serve or for mission trips, unleashing generosity, guys, as you guys share your shelf and stocking food pantries around our community so people will have food for the holidays. I just love it. I love seeing fall weekend and middle school and high school students growing deeper in Christ and women's ministry, all these things that God is doing for his glory, and we get to be a part of that. And I love seeing God move, and I love seeing God work in and through his church and in and through our lives together. Now, we've started this series with this question, what are you for? What are you for? Because we're all for something. And we said you can kind of look at your posts, you can look at Facebook, you can look at Instagram, you can look at Twitter, you can look at the back of your car, you can look at your house, and you can see the things that we're for. But as disciples of Christ, we want to be for the kingdom. We want to be men and women who live for the glory of God in this little bitty time that we've got here on this earth. We want our lives to count, and we want to further God's kingdom. We want to be for Christ and his kingdom. Now, in our series, we've been studying back in the Old Testament, and we've been looking at the people of God back then. And this is the most exciting time in the Old Testament. It's a time when the whole nation came together to do something great for God's glory. And David, their king, he started thinking one night, he's walking around on the roof of his palace, and, and he looks out, and all the people have beautiful houses, and he's thinking about when the, you know, his forefathers were slaves in Egypt, and how God delivered them and brought them through the wilderness, and now they have so much. And David says, wait a minute, why am I living in a palace and God's dwelling in a tent? Guys, let's do something great for the glory of God. Let's build a temple in the center of our community. And let's tell the other nations, this is what we're for. We're for one God, our God. And we're going to tell our children and our grandchildren, hey, would you come worship here? We're worshiping God. We want to do something for the kingdom of God. And God says, man, I love your heart. I love your passion, David. It's awesome. But you're not the one to build it. Solomon, your son, will build it. David's like, great. I'll let him build it, but I'm going to be dedicated. I'm going to be committed. I want to give my resources over and above my ongoing tithe. I want to give. I want to invest. I'm going to buy Mount Moriah in the center of Jerusalem where we'll put the temple. And he goes over to buy it. And the ruin of the Jebusite says, hey, you can have it. You're the king, right? And David goes, I'm not going to offer to God something that costs me nothing. Uh-uh. I want to buy it. I want to have it set up. 
And we left off with David going home to be with the Lord. And now Solomon, his son, is the king. And Solomon prays for wisdom. God, give me wisdom to lead the people. And God blesses Solomon. And now he rallies the people and says, let's do it. Let's build this temple. Let's all come together. And last week we left off as they finished building the temple. And today what we're going to see is this. God moved in. God moved in. So if you have a Bible with you this morning, I invite you up with me to 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles chapter 5. 2 Chronicles, Old Testament, right back in there in that kind of first and second section, 1 2 Samuel, 1 2 Kings, 1 2 Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, that whole section right there. And we're going to be in 2 Chronicles chapter 5. We've been walking verse by verse, you know, through the end of 1 Chronicles and now into 2 Chronicles. Hey, if you have your For the Kingdom journal with you, uh, you're on page 38 as we have a chance to write down some of the things that God's teaching us today and keeping with our community group studies as well. If you don't have a Bible, we've got some free Bibles in the back. Love for you to grab one on your way out today or go grab one now. Put your name in it. It's yours. And then we'll put the scripture up on the screen. But look here in 2 Chronicles chapter 5. It says, when all the work Solomon had done for the temple of the Lord was finished, he brought in the things his father David had dedicated, the silver and the gold and all the furnishings, and he placed them in the treasuries of God's temple. So we see that the temple was completed. It took them seven years, seven years to build the temple, okay? I mean, this was an architectural marvel. I mean, this was amazing. I mean, they had timbers that came, the cedars of Lebanon down the Mediterranean and through Joppa into Jerusalem, right? I mean, they had cut stones, massive, massive stones. Some of the biggest stones in the world are there. In fact, here we are 3,000 years later, and you can go to Jerusalem, and you can go to the Western Wall, and you can still see some of these stones that were in place. The foundation of the temple that was built 3,000 years ago. We got a couple of pictures. We showed a couple last week. But just you can see kind of the size of this temple in the outer courtyard. Then the inner courtyard, the big tall part is the holy place, the place where God would dwell and meet with his people. You can see how it was built on Mount Moriah. And I mean, this just radiated to all the other nations. Hey, we are for God, you know. And all the people, everybody was involved and everybody had a part to play. Look at verse 2. Then Solomon summoned to Jerusalem the elders of Israel, all the heads of the tribes and the chiefs of the Israelite families to bring up the ark of the Lord's covenant from Zion, the city of David. And all the Israelites came together to the king at the time of the festival in the seventh month. Now notice that all. All the nation. Now you remember there's 12 tribes. They're spread out all over this area of Palestine. And Solomon says, everybody come in. The whole nation, everybody come here. And we're going to have a time of worship. We're going to have a time of dedication. I want everybody here. And I was thinking about that passage, and I was thinking, like, in today's culture, today's society, when do we all come together, like, as a nation? When do we all come together? And I started thinking kind of in our American culture, like secular-wise, you know, it would be probably the Super Bowl, right? Everybody's kind of like, yeah, everybody, it kind of rallies us. But on a bigger scale, it would be probably the World Cup, right? The World Cup would be like, hey, yeah, and all these nations getting excited about it, right? Except the U.S. But anyway, everybody else gets excited about it, you know. But probably for us, maybe more the Ryder Cup, right? The, I mean, you guys may not even know what the Ryder Cup is, but the Ryder Cup is a big deal. Like, it's golf, okay? So that, that's a big deal in and of itself, right? But the Ryder Cup pits the U.S. versus the Europeans. And it started in 1927, and it happens every two years. 
and it's a much bigger deal in Europe, but like people just come together. So it happened about a month ago in Paris. Everybody there is there cheering on the European team, and they're all for this thing. And you can't even imagine how excited people get, right? They're just fired up for the Ryder Cup. Now, as Americans, we're kind of individualistic. So we always struggle in the Ryder Cup. We have the best golfers, but we play more as individuals. But the Europeans play as a team. And I want you to see this video. It's just a two-minute video. But this is what the Europeans showed their players before they played this year in the Ryder Cup against the United States. I want you to just kind of see the passion. I want you to see kind of what they're saying to their players. Watch this. You know, as you get older, things get taken away from you. And that's a part of life. You learn to treasure the opportunities you've had and reflect on those moments that have defined you. Both good and bad. This is more than just a game. You live it. And you've worked hard to be here. And it's not just about taking part, it's about winning. Nothing else. Sebi show me. There are times where you need to reach into the depths of your soul to get you through. This one is for him. Sorry about that. Honesty is everything. You only get out what you put in, but you never give up. So, outdo what they can do. You drive them. You outperform them. You wear them down with excellence. You give it absolutely everything. So come Sunday night, you can honestly say to yourself, I have no more to give. Somebody said, all men die, but not all men live. Well, this is the time to feel out. And when you stand there on your final round, remember, there is a tomorrow as a Ryder Cup winner. Or there is a tomorrow where you're not. Don't leave with any regrets. Guys, I'm fired up, man. I'm like ready to go out and like hit a drive down the fair. I mean, but, but you see this, you know, you see these older people, these older guys who've played, and now they're coming back and saying, guys, this is your time, right? It, it, it goes quick, right? I mean, time flies. This is the opportunity, the moment. And you take that and multiply it times 100, and now all of a sudden these people are living for the glory of God, and all the elders come together, and they're pouring into the younger people saying, guys, Focus on what matters. This is our opportunity. We're building this for the glory of God. And the entire nation is there. And when all the elders of Israel had arrived, you know, picture that scene. 
These guys who've lived life, who've said, hey, we've been there, we've done that. I want to tell you what matters. I want to tell you what's important. I want to tell you what to invest in. All the elders of Israel had arrived. The Levites took up the ark, and they brought up the ark and the tent of meeting and all the sacred furnishings in it. The Levitical priests carried them up, and King Solomon and the entire assembly of Israel that had gathered about him were before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and cattle that they could not be recorded or counted. These guys just started to worship. They were like, God, this is for your glory. Now remember the tabernacle and the temple. I mean, this is why this study is so deep and so relevant and so important for us because all of this is leading up to the sacrifice of Christ. Before, right, the Bible tells us the wages of sin is death. And so before when you'd come to worship, you'd bring an animal and you would have to have sacrifice it because a holy God, sinful man. And so they're sacrificing all these animals. But now the temple leads up to Jesus being the ultimate sacrifice for us. And we come in today and we can worship God freely. We come in today redeemed and restored. And so all this is leading up there and they are sacrificing, they are worshiping. And then look at verse seven. Then the priest, the priest then brought the ark of the Lord's covenant to its place in the inner sanctuary of the temple, the most holy place, and put it beneath the wings of the cherubim. So you remember that big tall part? They bring the Ark of the Covenant in. And the Ark of the Covenant represents the very physical presence of God on this earth. And they come and they place the Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place. Verse 8, the cherubim spread their wings over the place of the Ark and covered the Ark with its carrying poles. These poles were so long that their ends extending from the Ark could be seen from in front of the inner sanctuary but not from outside the holy place, and they are still there today. See, like if you touch the ark, you die, okay? And so they had these long carrying poles that they carry, and so many people are carrying, they put the ark there in the holy place, in the place where one day a year the high priest would go in on the day of atonement and offer sacrifices for the sins of all the people, and that's where God would dwell. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets that Moses had placed in it at Horeb, where the Lord had made a covenant with the Israelites after they came out of Egypt. So the only thing in there were the Ten Commandments, written by the very finger of God. God brought them out of a land of slavery, met them in the wilderness, and said, you're going to be my people. And you're going to be different than all the other nations around you. You are being carved out because the Messiah will come from you. And he wrote how they should live and how they should be different. And that's in the ark. Can you imagine? I mean, all these people who had worked and, and prayed and who cut stones and, and had rolled timbers and put everything in place. And now they're seeing as God moves in. The priest then withdrew from the holy place, and all the priests who were there had consecrated themselves regardless of their divisions. There weren't any divisions. They were all on the same team. They were all focused. And all the Levites who were musicians, Asaph, Heman, Judethan, and their sons and relatives stood on the east side of the altar dressed in fine linen and playing cymbals and harps and lyres. They were accompanied by 120 priests sounding trumpets. The trumpeteers and musicians joined in unison Everybody worshiped, right? To give praise and thanks to the Lord. Accompanied by trumpets, cymbals, and other instruments, the singers raised their voices and praised the Lord and sang, He is good, and his love endures forever. 
So their worship team comes out, and right, everybody's surrounding the temple, and everybody begins to sing, he is good, his love endures forever. We were slaves, and God delivered us. God has blessed us. God has given us all of this. He is good, and his love endures forever. And God, we are your people, and you are our God. Worship is the only proper response to God. Worship is the only proper response as we recognize who he is and who we are. He is God, and we're not. And we come, and we recognize his sovereignty in our lives. We recognize his goodness. We recognize his grace. Worship is our response for who he is and for what he's done in our lives. And when we come, worship isn't just, hey, we sing four or five songs on a Sunday and check it off. Worship is how we live, that we live for the kingdom. We live for what matters. And these people come together and then check this out. Then the temple of the Lord was filled with the cloud. And the priests could not perform their service because the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the temple of God. Can you imagine being there? Can you imagine all these people, I mean, a million plus people all circle around singing, and this cloud comes down, and God moves in. And God says, this is my place. This is my home, and I want to meet with you. I want to have a relationship with you. Wow. I mean, how powerful and how awesome when God moves in. Now, here's the amazing part. When you turn over to the New Testament, here's what it tells us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, it says, guys, guys, you, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. See, God doesn't simply dwell in a temple anymore. When Jesus came along and Jesus died for our sins on that cross, The temple veil was torn in two between the most holy place. God says, I'm going to have a relationship, a personal relationship with you. Jesus said, this is my body broken for you. And so when you give your life to Christ, as God draws you to himself, and you say, Jesus, I want you to indwell in me, you are a living temple of God. And your life should look different when God moves in. Your life should be transformed The Bible says the old is gone and the new has come. We were dead in our sins and our transgressions, but we were made alive in Christ. God has moved in. Romans chapter 12 tells us in verse 1, Therefore, my dear brothers, in view of God's mercy, in view of what God has done for you, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, for this is your spiritual act of worship. Our spiritual act of worship, right, isn't just like those few songs. Our spiritual act of worship is to offer our lives. God, let my life be a living testimony to the God I serve. Let my life radiate you. Let my life be for the kingdom of God. It says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And guys, this is where the battle's fought, by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. You know God has a perfect will for your life? So often people settle for God's good will, right? Because we're not willing to step forward and say, God, I fully trust you. I fully want to follow you. 
And God still has good will for us, but man, there is a pleasing will and there is a perfect will when you and I walk in light of who he is, when you guys live a life of worship we all do for his glory. I was talking with a guy a couple weeks ago and he said, Jeff, this whole series of For the Kingdom, it's just resonated with me. He said, I gotta tell you, I, I made money, my God. He said, my whole goal in life was to have a million dollars in the bank by the time I was 50. That was my whole goal. I grew up going to church, but I walked away from church. I walked away from the Lord. And for these years, I just pursued having a million dollars in the bank by the time I was 50. And two weeks before I turned 50, the stock market went up and I hit a million dollars. And I was like, I did it. I got it. And on my birthday, the stock market corrected. And all of a sudden, I didn't. And because I had pursued all that, I lost my marriage. My wife left. And I found myself alone, and I was broken. And he said, I didn't know where to turn. I didn't know what to do. And somebody invited me to church, and I came. And I heard that God loves me, and I heard that God has a plan for me, and I heard that God really cared about me. And I went home that night, and I got on my knees, and I said, God, I was living for the wrong thing, and I am sorry. God, I want to live my life for you. I want to live my life for you. And he said, right there, I just began to weep, and I just said, God, everything in me for you. For the rest of my life, however many days I have on this earth, everything for you. He said, I can't even believe what God's done in my life since. He said, it's just been a, it's been redemption, it's been grace, it's been a change in my life that God has done. He said, he just unleashed in me, and I began to not live for money, but God gave me money anyway. I began to get involved in church. I began to, you know, do missions and started to serve around town. I went to Moldova, as you know, a couple of years ago, and all of a sudden, I just, my eyes were open to the to poverty in the world and the need, and, and I just said, okay, God, everything for you, you can't outgive God. And, and all of a sudden, you know, God just starts doing these things in my life, and he unleashes joy and, and purpose, and he unleashes generosity, and I'm just seeing God move and work. And every morning, I wake up and just like, God, what are you going to do today? And a couple of years ago, God brought a a new woman in my life who loves Jesus. And I tell you, we got married and my life has never been the same. And I'm just thinking, thank you, God. He goes, I feel like Job. You know, he had so much at the beginning, he lost it all. And then God gave him more than he ever dreamed. He goes, that's my story. That's my journey. When God moved in. What's your story? When God moved in, how did he change you? How did he transform you? I read the other day, there's a lot of churches that, that they don't ever baptize anybody. They'll go years without seeing somebody baptized, and I just wonder, has God moved in? You can have a great building. The building's not a church. The church is the body of Christ living for the glory of God. When God moves in, there ought to be a change. You see people's lives, and they just look like the world, and you just wonder, has God moved in? You see people's marriages, and you think, man, it's the same as everybody else's marriage. I mean, you know, we're fighting and bickering. Has God moved in? You see parents and you say, hey, what am I talking to my kids about? Am I only talking to them about homework and sports? Have I ever had a spiritual conversation? Has God moved in? In my life, has God moved in? Because when God moves in, he makes the dead alive. When God moves in, he turns sorrow to joy. When God moves in, he brings hope and joy and purpose and peace when God moves in. And that's what God wants to do. He wants to move in and change us and transform us and use us for his glory. And this is our time. Make no mistake about it, this is our time, and it goes quick. 
One of my faith heroes is a guy named C.S. Lewis. Uh, I just love C.S. Lewis. And, and C.S. Lewis was born in 1898 in England. And C.S. Lewis, just as he grew up, he was one of the most brilliant thinkers our world has ever seen. Just intellectual, smart. Went on to teach at Oxford College. Professor there. But total atheist. And he said, I was actually mad at God because I didn't think he existed. I was mad. Like, why don't you exist? You could do something in this world. Well, God, where are you? But in 1931, through some friends, J.R.R. Tolkien and Hugo Dyson and some others, they started talking to him about Jesus. He started reading the Bible. And one night, he got down on his knees by his bed, and God moved in. And here's C.S. Lewis, man. He stands up, and he says, my life is different. It was changed. God was with me. And God unleashed in me this passion for him that I wanted to live for the kingdom of God. He wrote his autobiography and he called it Surprised by Joy. He said, I didn't know that when you were in God, when God moves in, I didn't know that there was joy. I didn't know that was gonna come. I didn't understand that. He started writing. He wrote to other people who were intellectuals who didn't know if they believed in God. He wrote Mere Christianity, an incredible book. If you have some friends who are struggling kind of with faith, a great book to give them and say, hey, check this out. And then something happened. And during the war, World War II, in London, they started moving all the kids out to the suburbs because of the bombings that were going to come there in London. And C.S. Lewis opened his home, and he took in these children. And when these children were in his home, he, he started watching them. He was thinking about, what's the next generation going to be? What if the next generation could miss living for the things of this world and could truly live for the things of God? What if they caught it in all the years that they had? What if they could get that vision? They could change the world. They could change the hate that we're seeing in the world and the wars, and they could, they could live for God. And so he wrote these books, the Chronicles of Narnia. Peter and Susan and Lucy and Edmund, it sold over 100 million copies, 47 different languages, been made into full-length motion picture films. But his whole reason was because he was going to pour into the next generation and say, what if you lived your life for God all of your days? What impact you can make? What difference you can make? And guys, as the body of Christ, that's what we get to be a part of. That's what for the kingdom is all about, for us to live our lives for the kingdom, but for us to invest in others. For us to say, hey, we want you to know what's important. We want you to know what's going to last. We want you to have joy and peace and purpose and hope. We want you to understand. And the world's going to invite you to go down a dark path. But listen, you don't have to do that. You can live for the things of God. And as the body of Christ, we get to do that together. And so we've been in this For the Kingdom initiative. We've been talking about these five things, right, that we want to invest in the next generation. We want to invest in our kids, your kids. We want to invest in preschool children, students, middle school, high school. We want, we want to see them grow up knowing Jesus and the hope of Christ. We want to invest in what's happening in Nolensville and having a place in the center of the community. We want to invest in Nashville, having a place in the center of Nashville, people that know Jesus is to say, hey, this is what we're for. We want to invest in marriages and having adult space here so we can pour into marriages and parents and, and help one another grow as disciples of Christ. And we want to invest in transitional living homes in Moldova with orphans who the government would say, hey, you're, 
An orphan's worth nothing more than to be a beggar and a prostitute, and we come along and say, oh, no, 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 no. Jesus says, you're worth so much more. And you have a hope and a future, and lives can be changed and transformed, and we want to invest in that. And so throughout this series, we've had a, a card. If you have your journey guide, and maybe you have this card, or if you have your worship guide this morning, inside there, there is a commitment card. And I want to ask you just to pull this out. And maybe you came today and you were like, hey, I'm ready. You know, I've been talking about this. I've been praying about this. I want to invest over and above my tithe. I want to give. I want to invest in the things of God. I want to say to the world, this is what I'm for. I'm for life changing Christ. I'm for the glory of God. I'm for investing there. Maybe you came today and you're ready. Maybe you've talked together as a family. Maybe you've talked together with your spouse or with your friend. Maybe you have prayed but maybe today God's stirring at you and saying, hey, this is your time. This is your time. This is your opportunity. And you can take and fill this out. In just a moment, we're going to have a chance to give, a chance to commit together. You know, when you think about it, think about the people who invested in you. And whether it was the elders of Israel, whether it's people who are older who've gone before you, but there were people who invested in you so that your dreams would become a reality. There were people who invested and built churches that you were maybe baptized in. And you didn't know that the people who built it, but, but you were baptized there. And you grew up in a church, maybe, and you had friends because there were small group leaders who poured into you, or there were people who built space so that you could come and you could learn more about Jesus. Maybe you stood at an altar one day and got married in a church building and somebody built that. Maybe you can remember hearing stories from your parents or your grandparents or your great-grandparents about, hey, we were involved in this church, or we built it with our bare hands, and it was snowing or it was raining, but we were all out there. We were all together. It was the most exciting time because we got to be a part of something, of what God was doing in this earth. And when you think about it, the people back in the Old Testament, they had their time, and David and Solomon and these guys, they had their time, and the people of God then in the New Testament, they had their time. And people who've gone before us, they had their time. And guys, this is our time, and this is our opportunity. And we get 70, 80, 90 years on this earth, and let's live it for the kingdom. Let's invest so that we grow and mature as disciples of Christ, but let's invest so that those who come behind us know we were for the kingdom, and we can invest in them and impact their lives and transform them and see their dreams become a reality one day. If you have your card, I would love for you just to hold that. If you're with your spouse or just reach out, grab their hand or a family member or a friend. And let me pray for us right now as we have a chance to commit to say this is what we're for. So Father God, here we are. Your disciples today. And God, I thank you for those who've gone before us. I thank you for the example in Scripture, God, that you showed us people who were passionate about worship, passionate about investing in your things. Thank you that it took them seven years to build the temple, but God, they did it. Thank you, most of all, for Jesus who binds our hearts together today and the hope that we have in Christ and the ultimate sacrifice that Jesus paid it all for us. Thank you for the early church and thank you for Christians who suffered 
so that the gospel will be passed on to the next generation and the next generation. Thank you for those who've gone before us who, who built buildings and then, God, you moved in and changed lives and changed hearts. And this morning, oh, Father, we invite you in that your Holy Spirit would move among us. We pray, God, that you would reorder our lives around what's important, that we would seek first the kingdom of God and your righteousness and knowing all these other things in the world will be added later on. But, God, we want to follow you. Father, let us invest and make a difference in those who will come behind us, see their dreams, see their lives, see their hopes, see their joys. God, thank you for this time of commitment. Thank you for this holy moment as you move in.